Today's episode of Art of the Cut is sponsored by ncrawl.com. ncrawl is the web-based platform for managing and rendering end credits used by over 1,000 film productions, including 42 films at this year's Sundance 2020 Film Festival. Sign up today at ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Hello, and welcome to Art of the Cuts, Voices from Sundance. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a film editor, and I interview my colleagues in film and TV. Today's voice from Sundance is documentary film editor Gil Seltzer. He started as a news editor at CNN, cutting Anderson Cooper's 360. He edited the doc Transmilitary, which won the Audience Award at South by Southwest in 2018. He edited the History Channel's Superheroes Decoded and is also a prize-winning dramatic screenplay writer. Today we discuss his editing of the documentary film Aggie, which I will let him explain. Tell me a little bit about the film and just give us some context about what it was like. The film is about a woman named Agnes Gund, and she's an art collector and a philanthropist. And she has been collecting art for many, many years. She was the president of MoMA, and she's been kind of in the art world for a long time. At the same time, she's also been doing philanthropy, you know, in various causes. And, you know, she's been instrumental in the art world, bringing light to underrepresented artists. Um, She was, you know, she brought a lot of... Um, women artists to, to MoMA's collection. You know, she's always been kind of active, but recently she's started to sell off a little bit, you know, more of her collection um, in order to fund larger and larger scale social justice initiatives. She was really good friends with Roy Lichtenstein and his wife, and she bought a painting from Roy, you know, 25 years ago. It was just in her living room. It was one of her, you know, favorite pieces. And she realized that that painting could actually do a lot. And she, you know, she lived with it for a while and she decided to sell it. And she sold it for $165 million. And she took all of that and started a fund called Art for Justice that's trying to end mass incarceration, which is coincidentally the climax of our film, you know, because it's, it was, it was a pretty big deal. She's kind of um, an unassuming person. She never did it for the personal spotlight. You know, she was always doing it to do it, you know, to help um, others. And so the film is about her life. It traces how she arrived to that point. It looks at what art is and why somebody would be, you know, drawn to it, you know, why somebody would start collecting. And also, you know, the power that art has, first of all, to influence people, but also beyond that, to do good, to affect change, you know, in the world. That was a pretty literal example. (laughs) The art was transformed into justice. So hence the name of her organization. So, uh, so basically, a verite documentary? No. no, there was there was some verite, but it didn't focus on that. It, so, when I first arrived at the project, there were interviews that were shot, which is essentially conversational, you know, sort of like loosely structured interviews between her and you know artists and other collectors and friends and family members, and that was sort of the the sort of like the basis of the film. You know, we also had to tell her life story, and almost all of that was done through archival, you know, archival footage, photos, magazine articles. Um, and so the film kind of goes back and forth. There's a little bit of verite, but it's not fly on the wall, you know, type approach. Tell me a little bit about starting to build the structure of this. And, and did you do like a radio cut and then go from there? So the film is not told you know, in a classical, linear, chronological fashion. It's more thematic. You know, we had some sort of keystones for the for the story, but we go back and forth in time a lot. And so 
when I, you know, when I sat down with the director after watching all the footage, you know, we started to um, identify themes, you know, that we wanted to explore. And then we sort of put in those categories, certain scenes, you know, or certain moments in her, you know, in her career. Um, there wasn't a lot of archival collected, but we knew that it existed. And so, you know, there was there was a whole... There's an archival producer. There's a whole team that went out just to, you know, kind of, you know, to collect all of that. You know, once we sort of, you know, we had a cork board, we did index cards. We kind of started from like the most basic elemental approach to, to, to telling a story. And so once we had sort of those themes that we could build scenes around, I went in and just started to pull footage and to start building scene by scene. You know, we knew that the structure was going to change because, you know, we weren't going from A to Z. We still knew that we wanted to identify those themes and they would go somewhere in the film. So I just started building out scenes and I put a rough cut together after a couple months that had, I would say, maybe 60 or 70 percent what we wanted to put in the movie. And we got to that point pretty quickly, but the last 30 percent, it took a long time to fill in the the gaps to finish building the the story. I'm really interested in the kind of the nuts and bolts of of developing those scenes. So you got all these ideas, you've got yeah. these themes, you start building scenes knowing that, hey, we'll, we'll probably use this scene, but we don't know how, maybe. Yeah. Is that yeah. how you do it? You just go, we know we have this scene of selling this one painting or yeah. something. When we approached an interview for a certain, you know, we wanted to pull something out of that interview. Generally, these interviews weren't just about one subject. They covered a broad range of material. That's why we had to look and watch everything. Let's say, you know, we had one scene that we knew we wanted to build about Aggie's uh, empathy, how she, you know, how she arrived at being a very empathetic person. We identified conversations about empathy, maybe that happened in eight interviews. And so we went in, you know, and pulled whatever we could out of those interviews. And then I put it all together and just tried to make that a coherent, you know, try to make a statement essentially, you know, out of every scene. And so that landed us at that 60 or 70 percent mark. We had something solid for those scenes. Um, and then, you know, the huge archival push came. And then after that, there was more production that happened, you know, because there were things that needed that we just didn't have at all anywhere. Talk to me about the discussion between the archival team and mm-hmm. you. Was it, I'm assuming two ways. You're like, you going, hey, I need this. And them going, here's a bunch of stuff. Yeah. We don't know what you want to do with it, but we know we got it. We had a really good archival producer, and she was instrumental in being proactive. She would sit in on meetings when we were discussing, you know, rough cuts of scenes, and, you know, then she would go off and do some research and just sometimes present us with material that might be relevant, which was super helpful because, you know, we were able to make discoveries through that that we wouldn't have made if we just, you know, if we would have done it the other way. But when I needed a certain piece of material or when I needed for her to go find a news broadcast, you know, about a, something that happened around the time, you know, when Aggie was, let's say, at MoMA or... Yeah, that was, you know, there were certain specific things that I needed and I had a wish list of things. And when those didn't come, you could be upset, but sometimes it, it, it made you sort of approach that scene a different way and find another solution. And that solution was so much better than sort of like the conventional, you know, let's get this piece of, you know, archive to like tell this part of the story in the way that, you know, we've all seen before. So sometimes we would have a different approach and it came through necessity. The other thing that also achieved that goal was uh, we used art in the film. There's a database of all the art that she collected. You know, a lot of it she's already given away. It's not in her possession anymore, but we had a database of everything 
that she's ever you know acquired and it's almost looking at it's like the history of art it's it's it was pretty expansive and so the director had this idea to sometimes use that art to sort of you know illustrate what's happening in her inner world mm-hmm. because she there's a reason why she bought it or she was attracted to it and even though you know she might not have articulated it in any interview. You know, we knew that it could be powerful if used correctly. So we we developed, you know, for certain scenes, these, you know, art stories, you know, and, you know, I would just cut them into the timeline. I would create like little montages. And our rule was we're only going to use those when Aggie is talking about a feeling or an emotion, you know, that she had, you know, in a certain situation. And then we, we sent it off to our motion graphics vendor and they animated it. Um, but the challenge was to animate it in a way that it still represents the artist's initial, you know, intent, but also to kind of breathe some life into it. We're not, we're not just seeing, you know, a piece of art on a wall. Those were more than just pushing in or pulling out or yeah you know a lot of times they they actually would silo things and you know and and you know give them dimension you know there was texture put on it sometimes they would you know they place it in like sort of like a subtle environment um you know they would do you know moves you know we we kind of went back and forth with how much to do it because at some point you know it was it distorted the work so much that it didn't look like you know the artist's work anymore so we had to pull back but but yeah, it was that was it was a really kind of fun. It was a it was an amazing process to kind of do that because you know you're kind of bringing life to something that or to someone's you know intention by you know this sort of like third party vehicle. Yeah, but that idea of taking these pieces of art that you, like as you said, she never articulated why she bought them, or m- might not have articulated a specific piece, mm-hmm. and by juxtaposing or superimposing it over her feelings talking about her feelings you've created that relationship or enhanced the relationship maybe yeah and it was interesting to um to show her that because oh that's yeah talk to me a little bit about that because that's i've talked to um feature film editors who've done movies about real people's lives and they feel a real uh stewardship they're like i have to do right by this real person that this movie's about yeah yeah, this was a, a unique experience for me because I've worked on films about real people and never met them, right? It was very sort of impartial, which is, you know, in one sense, it, it can be, you know, it could be helpful because you're not sort of influenced. But also, you know, you don't know that person. You don't really, you know, you don't know what they're like. You don't know, you know, you just don't have a relationship. And I, I did meet Aggie several times. You know, I got to know her. Um, there was sort of a responsibility, you know, to, to do some justice to her story. You know, which I hope I hope we did. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Gil Seltzer. I'm really excited to have Ncrawl as a sponsor. If you've ever been through the end credits process in Final Post, you already know why someone had to create this product. What's interesting, though, is how they went about it. Their cloud render engine turns around preview renders in minutes and 2K and 4K renders in about half an hour. The Ncrawl render engine is on demand 24-7, so even if you're in a late night editing session, you can sign into your project, fix that typo, and add that late breaking special thanks, and with one click, get your new render fast. And here's the best part, renders are unlimited. Ncrawl has a freemium tier, and they offer free personal demo projects to all working industry professionals. Right now, there's actually a wait list, but if you sign up now with our special link, you can jump to the front of the line. 
That's ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Again, that's ncrawl.com slash AOTC. And now back to my interview with Gil Seltzer. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um, trying to organize all that stuff because some documentaries is kind of obvious, like, oh, there's this story, there's this story, but you've got a bunch of elements that could go anywhere. Yeah. So how do you organize that so that you can find it and be inspired by it? And When I was watching the interviews, I typically like to just create buckets. You know, I, I just start bins, you know, and just start throwing things into bins. You know, as I was screening, I was already, I was, I was cutting already. You know, I, I can't help myself. So, you know, there were some major things that we wanted to bring out, you know, some major themes. Those are easy. Those are obvious. And so, you know, by the time I finished screening, I already had a good idea for those, you know, let's say four or five scenes, I knew what I, what was going to go in. But it all comes from screening everything and just making detailed notes. I like to create a document for every interview, I like to sort of give myself, you know, there's transcriptions made, but, but I like to bullet point the key moments in that, in that interview. So, you know, I had, by the end, I had like, like a 50 page document. So that's something that I, I kind of had memorized almost, you know, I knew I, I just, I could refer to that. I refer to that throughout the entire process. So you're talking about referring to it yeah. and also having memorized. See, I would yeah. think a lot of making the document is just sticking in your head. Yeah. When would you go, oh, I got to look at that document? What would be the reason that you would go, this has got to be written down someplace? <laughs> right. Um, I guess if there was something missing, if, if we put a scene together, you know, and I knew that there was something missing, there was, you know, there's a piece of information that we needed, or sometimes a scene just was flat, you know, it didn't have an emotional punch and we needed something, I don't know, more profound, you know, to pull together. And so that's when I recalled that that was in somewhere in one of the interviews, you know, and that document really helped me to, you know, to kind of like laser in and, and, and you know, recall that piece of footage. I've worked at a couple of places that have had rules about when you go to on camera, basically, yeah. that, yeah, you could go to on camera just for some information, but when do you go to it? Why do you choose to put somebody on camera or not at a specific time? I don't know. With me, it's all intuition. I mean, I, I, there's no rule. I've never developed a rule and maybe there is a rule, but I don't intuitively, or I don't, you know, I don't know what that is. It's just, it's for me, it's, I want to see them on camera. That's it. The, the rule I'm talking about in my specific instance is that you only go to someone on camera when emotionally it's the right time. You don't yeah. just go to them on camera because I don't have anything else and I'm just going to stick them on camera just to look at their face for 20 minutes. You know, you're, right. you're like, yeah. no, at this moment, there's some, you, something is revealed in their eyes. Something is revealed by a, a hesitation that you wouldn't get if you were on an artwork. Yeah, no, of course. It's, it's the same reason, you know, you might, you know, punch in from like a wide shot to a close up, right? You, yeah, you want to emphasize something. And a lot of, it, it is, it is about connecting. It is about having the viewer connect with, you know, with a person, you know, with a, with, with a subject. And sometimes it, there's nothing more powerful than connecting, you know, by looking at somebody, right? The face. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, hopefully you get to a point where you don't even have to discuss that with, you know, a director, or, you know, they don't have to discuss it with you. You just, you both know that that's the right time. I would say that most of the times that happened. <laughs> Let's talk yeah. about structure really quickly. So you've got all these scenes, yeah. you're starting to maybe, you know, maybe on the wall or maybe in your timeline, you're starting yeah. to build, here's how we get from point A to point B. What are some of those decisions about structure and what goes in which order and what gets deleted. I mentioned that our climax is, you know, when she sells this painting. So we needed to establish how she got to that point. You know, she's not 
a household name, right? So we needed to, you know, early on we need to establish why we're watching a film about this person. And the other aspect is that the art world is, for most people, an esoteric, you know, concept. You know, it's, I didn't know much about the art world beforehand, even though I went to an art school, but, you know, I was in the film department, you know, we didn't, we didn't study, you know, the art world. Um, and so, you know, there was a fine balance with how much information to, you know, to give people just, you know, we just need to give them what they need to sort of understand who this person is, and then understand why, you know, why they got to this point. And so structurally, because it wasn't just told linearly, the sort of like themes of empathy and themes of justice had to be sort of established earlier. And then we got to the the action, you know, what she did, you know, when she did it, you know, she was influenced by, you know, several other works of art, like, um, you know, she watched Ava DuVernay's The 13th, and she read Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, which was made into a film. So those sort of came a little bit later. Um, but it was really about how much information, you know, does the audience need in order to go into the, the next act? And then how much information does an audience need? And how much empathy do we do we need to create before we've earned the final act of the film. So yeah, so there was a lot of restructuring. It, it, you know, it took a long time to arrive to that point. Also, as we were cutting, you know, we knew that there was a lot of archival that was missing that was out there that would eventually arrive, you know, so we had to create holes, you know, for that stuff to come in. Sometimes it didn't, and we had to come up with other solutions. And that required, you know, structuring a little bit differently. It was a lot more complicated than just a linear chronological story because we yeah we had all these other considerations did a lot of that structural stuff get worked out on a wall with postcards or yes we we did we got a cork board did index cards and we had that for probably at least half of post-production because you know things are happening so frequently restructuring and different you know pieces of media would would, would come in there were reshoots there shoot you know there was additional production and so that was instrumental for for a while until it wasn't you know until at some point it just becomes you know we're all intimate with the material and it becomes kind of just moving around the blocks that we already have we abandoned the index card cork board thing at that point did you have some input on reshoots like oh man we really need this transition from this thought to this thought or we need greater clarification on this yeah there were either transitional elements that we needed or you know in certain interviews there was something another um interaction or another artist alluded to that we didn't have anything on um for example she one of her one of her big things is that she doesn't just buy art from a gallery you know, without meeting the artists, without knowing them. She likes to go to, you know, artists' workshops and their studios and to talk to them and, you know, engage with them. But we didn't have anything, you know, showing her that. And so that was one of the verite scenes where, you know, we, you know, I, I said we need to, you know, we need to see this. If this is like, you know, sort of the core of why she's different as a collector, we need that in the film. So Yeah, I definitely want to, yeah. I definitely want to see that as yeah. a viewer. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Like, who yeah. is that? Yeah, and we had so many people alluding to it, but we didn't actually have that that moment. So luckily, you know, um, yeah, the director and the producers were able to, you know, arrange that. And that's, I mean, that's that's in the, the first act of the film. You know, we, we needed to, it was it was crucial to set that up early. Uh, what about temp music? How, what do you temp with, or do you worry about temp? That's huge for me. Music is crucial, and so there was a composer that was brought on early. And so that really helped me to figure out what music to temp with. It was Jason Moran, who's a 
jazz pianist and so I knew I, I scored a lot of the film with jazz and you know I used to play jazz I used to be in a jazz band so I'm really familiar with it so I was kind of cognizant of what he would create and so I, I picked a lot of music that I knew would translate um, piano you know, stuff uh, instead of guitar stuff or... yeah yeah a lot of piano stuff and I used a lot of like Vince Guaraldi's music you know which is a little bit more subtle because you know jazz can conflict you know especially with you know with it's something you gotta you have, yeah it calls attention to itself often yeah yeah, I mean, in a jazz trio, everyone's like fighting for attention. So, yeah. Tell me about uh, the decision to go to edit with Premiere, and have you edited in other NLEs, and what was that decision like? Yeah, I've I have edited with Avid. I mean, that's kind of, that was sort of like my basis. That's what I started with. Um, uh, the past few films, I've I've worked in Premiere, and you know, it's it's been really great. The the thing that Premiere was really it you know was really helpful to use on this project is because we had footage from so many different sources, you know, different codecs, different frame sizes, you know, different, you know, it, it was just, it was great just to be able to have everything in a timeline, you know, without having to transcode, without having to, you know, to like nest things, you know, we, we were just able to really, you know, be very flexible and, and, and Premiere helped us out with that. Um, along with, um, you know, we had thousands of archival photographs and a lot of them needed retouching, so we were able to do that in-house, you know, without sending it out and just, you know, round-trip it from Photoshop pretty pretty quickly. And I did some After uh, after Effects work as well. Premiere was very helpful in this film in particular. Is there a difference in organizing a project, especially a documentary, in Avid as compared to Premiere? Is there either an advantage or that just structurally the two NLEs, you want to organize things differently? Um. No? I don't think it's so. Just basically bin. Yeah, they're bins, and you put stuff in a bin, and you're. Yeah, um, you know, with Premiere, you can get you can get pretty deep into markers and to the metadata as well, um, which you know I, I've done before on different projects, but I didn't really have to do it with this. Um, no, it was it's it's a it's pretty transferable. What's some of the metadata stuff you've done in other documentaries with Premiere that where that's coming to play? A lot of times footage will be ingested and, you know, an assistant or a producer will tag certain pieces of footage with scenes, you know, with scene data or, you know, sometimes with licensing information, sometimes with, you know, literally a list of characters that were, you know, if it's a verite scene, you know, with a bunch of a bunch of people. Nice. So, yeah. So, you know, in um, uh, when, you know, if I come to a project, you know, later on after a, a lot of footage is ingested, you know, it's sort of, sort of like a shorthand, be able to do a search and have all of this footage from this particular, you know, characteristic just in a bin. So it's helpful if somebody, if, if it's already set up. Thanks for a great conversation. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening to Art of the Cuts Voices from Sundance podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Gil Seltzer. I'm Steve Hullfish. This is my final Voice from Sundance for this year, but the regular Art of the Cut podcasts will continue. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a review on your favorite podcasting platform so others can find us. Then follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. And make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.